The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 5th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So one of the annoying things about the Iowa caucus, other than the fact that it probably won't be predictive whatsoever, is the counting of field offices. Oh, do we get so excited in the media by counting field offices, like swallows going to, coming from, or at least trying to get 5% of the especially evangelical people out of Capistrano. Do we count the field offices? Now, Republicans don't have many field offices. Surprised to see that Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee still running. They each have a field office. They've each done really well in the Iowa caucuses. Carly Fiorina has no field offices, but really no one has more than a couple field offices on the Republican side. But when it comes to Democrats, oh my God, Martin O'Malley has five field offices. Martin O'Malley has as many field offices as Trump, Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, and Marco Rubio combined. Bernie Sanders has 20 field offices and Hillary Clinton has 19. Hillary Clinton has 114 employees in the state, which means that her field offices are a lot more crowded than Bernie's. He has 49 employees in the state. Some other media organizations count it differently. Like the New York Times says Hillary Clinton has 24 field offices and 78 paid staffers, whereas Bernie Sanders has 23 field offices and 87 paid staffers. Is this a lot? Well, I compared it to some other businesses that might have offices, like Target's. Target stores. How many field offices? Sorry, Target stores are there in Iowa. More or less than Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have field offices. Less, a little less. There are 21 targets compared to that Times figure of uh, Clinton with 24 and Sanders with 23. How about Quiznos? Only 10 Quiznos in Iowa. How about Pizza Ranches? If you haven't heard of the Pizza Ranch, you're either A, not from Iowa, B, especially avoidant of kind of terrible food, or C, you don't consume, maybe not Pizza Ranch, but you don't consume tons of stories about the Iowa caucus because about one out of every six are set in a pizza ranch, as Mike Huckabee says something underneath a mural of a painted wagon and some mozzarella cheese. There are only 17 pizza ranches. I mean, I thought these were the most iconic businesses. No, not as iconic as a Bernie Sanders field office, I guess. By the way, there are how many synagogues would you guess in the state of Iowa? Now, this is, I just Googled it. Maybe I should have Googled it, but I just Googled it. They say there are 18 synagogues in the state of Iowa. So Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton both have more synagogues than the 18 high, the high number of synagogues in the state of Iowa. By the way, dear Abby and Landers, both Iowa Jews. Hope that helps you. In the spiel today, happy manipulating. But first, Matthew Dick stops by. He tells me a story via a story. He tells me how to tell a story. And in this story that he tells, it's autobiographical and the main character just might die. But since you know he's telling me the story, I'll tell you this. Matthew Dick lives. But he also gives some good advice. Here's that now. Every picture tells a story. Rod Stewart said that. And then he ruined it by adding, don't it. I don't know why he said don't it. Anyway, 
Speaking of stories, we're here with the best, just the best, Matthew Dix. He's a 20-time Moth Story Slam champion. He's a finalist for Connecticut Teacher of the Year. He's written a bunch of books. My favorite is Unexpectedly Milo. The new one is The Perfect Comeback of Caroline Jacobs. And he's here to help me specifically because uh, I've got a big assignment coming up. Hello, Matthew Dix. Hello, Mike. So I've got, on January 15th, I've been invited to tell a story where... You'll be telling a story? Uh, no, I won't be telling a story. You won't be telling a story. You'll be there coaching both me and... Frank. Frank was the feller we picked out to uh, help tell the story, and we coached him up. And so this thing will be on Friday, January 15th at the Crane Theater. You got to help me. I yeah. tell stories all the time, but I've never told a story where everyone knew that it was this big thing headline story. Now here's Mike with a story. You know, often I'll say something and then three or four minutes and you're like, oh, this is a story. <laughs> but I've never gotten into it saying, now I will tell you a story. What do I need to know? All right. So today I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. It's actually a story with a holiday bent. So it'll okay. be a gift to you. Thank you. And then using the story, I'm going to give you three important tips that mm -hmm. you can use when beginning to craft your story. I have observations, you know, but I don't really have like a big beginning, middle, end story. Right. About myself. All right. Well, hopefully this will get you there. All right. All right. So... So it's December 23rd, 1988. Mm -hmm. I'm coming out of a Strawberries Records and Music. I've got a shopping bag in my hand, and I see my friend Pat coming down the sidewalk. He asks me what's in the bag. I tell him that there's a concert T-shirt in the bag, a Christmas present, a surprise Christmas present for our friend Benji, who is my best friend. Pat looks at me a little funny. Uh, Pat's 15 at the time. He's three years younger than me, but he's already cooler than I will ever be in my entire life. So when Pat looks at me like this, I've learned to pay attention. Pat tells me that guys don't buy Christmas presents for other guys. And they especially don't buy surprise Christmas presents for other guys. He tells me he's had girlfriends for six months or more and never bought them a damn thing. So the idea of me buying a surprise Christmas present for my guy friend is weird. Mm -hmm. I'm suddenly feeling very self-conscious about the betta fish in the backseat of my car, the one I bought for Pat like an hour ago at the <laughs> pet store, and the comic books I bought for Coog, and the sweatshirt I bought for Tom. And my car is full of presents for my friends. And I know that Pat's right. It's weird that I have spent the day buying surprise Christmas presents for my friends, but it's been a long time since I've had a good Christmas, and I have decided to make this one good at last. Uh, the combination of a lifetime of poverty and now my parents' failing marriage has caused the last few Christmases to be a misery. But for the first time in my life, I have money in my pocket. I'm a McDonald's manager. I'm working full-time while going to school. I make $6.25 an hour, and I'm the richest person I know. And I am going to take all of the money that I have saved over the fall, and I am going to buy presents and buy myself the perfect Christmas. And so I'm driving home. I have a shift, actually, at McDonald's later that day, so I have to get home, get these presents out of the car, get my uniform, and head back to work. I'm driving through this little country town, and it's starting to snow. It's the first snowfall of the year, and it's looking like it's going to be a perfect Christmas. The lawns are turning white. It is just picturesque. I come up a hill, I come down the back side of a hill, and that's when my car starts to slide into the opposite lane. I look up and I see that there's a white Mercedes-Benz coming right at me. In these moments, people say that time will slow down and stop, and it is absolutely true. In the three seconds it takes for our two cars to collide, I have exactly three thoughts. The first is, I'm not wearing my seatbelt. And I wear my seatbelt every day. 
But in the excitement of buying Christmas presents and the rush to get home to get my McDonald's uniform, I have forgotten on the worst day of my life to forget. My second thought is, I've always been told in situations like this, you're supposed to steer into the skid. But it occurs to me, I don't actually know what that means. And to this day, I still don't really know what that means. (laughs) And the third thought I have is just one sentence. It's five words long, and I actually say it out loud. I say, this is going to suck. And it does. When our cars collide, my head is thrown forward and I crash through the windshield. But before I get to the windshield, my chin hits the steering wheel. It knocks the entire bottom row of my teeth right out and into the back of my mouth. It splits open my chin. My head goes forward and hits the windshield and it begins to go through, but I'm not ejected from the car because my legs at the same moment surge forward and they hit the air conditioning unit. My right leg is torn down to the bone and my left leg hits the emergency brake release. It knocks the handle off, but my knee gets skewered on the post. My chest comes forward and hits the steering wheel, breaking ribs and knocking all of the air out of my body. It takes a second for all of this to happen, and then it is quiet and still. And thanks to shock, I don't feel a single thing, and I don't feel an ounce of fear. The only concern I have is this chunk of teeth that are now floating around in my mouth. I get myself out of the car, and I'm sort of, I'm holding myself up, sort of half standing, half crouched by the door, when the woman from the Mercedes gets out. It's a middle-aged woman. She's walking towards me. She's completely unharmed, thanks to her seatbelt and her car. She takes one look at me, though, and she vomits and passes out right beside me on the road. The next people that arrive, it's a pickup truck with kids piled in the back of the pickup truck. And the first kid to get to me is someone just about my age. He gets me down into the mud and the snow on the side of the road, and he sort of gives me a once-over, and then he gets close to my ear, leans in, and says, Dude, you're fucked. It is the most accurate medical assessment that I will receive that day. The next person that arrives on the scene is a police officer. He takes his coat off, and he lays it down to keep me warm, but with my broken ribs, the coat feels like it weighs a 1,000 pounds. I can barely breathe under its weight. I'm looking up at a white sky as the snow is falling, and after a moment, I close my eyes. When I open them again, I'm in the back of an ambulance. There's a woman straddling my waist, and she is pounding on my chest, which is now on fire. And there's a man beside me trying to force a thin plastic hose down my mouth when she starts screaming, he's back, he's back. And I'm wondering who the hell is back and where did he go? But it is me, I'm back. It turns out that my heart stopped beating and I had stopped breathing for about a minute. When I'm in the emergency room, nurses go to work on me right away. They start picking uh, glass out of my forehead, hundreds of pieces of glass, and the doctors go to work on my knees. They're prepping me for surgery. A nurse comes over and she asks me for my personal information. My license and my wallet haven't made from the car accident to the hospital. And so I give her the name of my parents and my phone number, and then I give her the number for McDonald's. I tell her that I'm supposed to be at work, and she needs to call and tell them that I'm not going to make it. She looks at me like I'm crazy, and I sort of am, because like literally half an hour ago I was dead, and now I'm worried about my shift at McDonald's. But I know that the drive through does not run well without me, and they're going to have to get at least two people. And so I insist that she call, and bless her heart, she does. We're sitting there, and we're waiting, and it's December 23rd, so it's a long time before we get a surgeon to come and help me. And as we're waiting, I can see the faces on the nurses, and they change they're starting to wonder, where the hell is this kid's parents? Because they still haven't arrived. We are waiting and waiting, and I'm starting to feel alone. We'll find out later that 
when my stepfather calls and finds out that I'm stable at the hospital, he decides to go to check on the car before he comes to check on me. And my parents don't make it before I'm rolled into surgery. And so I'm lying in this emergency room two days before Christmas, and I'm feeling just completely alone. But it turns out that I'm not alone because that nurse called McDonald's. And the manager on duty told my friends who were working what had happened to me. And an old-fashioned phone tree begins, friends calling friends calling friends. And now the waiting room outside the emergency room is filling up with 16 and 17 and 18-year-old kids in concert T-shirts and ripped jeans and one 15-year-old boy who was cooler than all of them. And the first person to arrive at the hospital that day is my best friend, Benji. And when the nurses realize that my parents aren't going to make it before I'm rolled into that operating room, they roll my gurney to the other side of the emergency room and they pop the doors open. And one by one, each one of my friends stand in the doorway. And the boys say incredibly inappropriate things. And the girls tell me they love me. And as I'm rolled down into the operating room, I can hear them chanting my name. All of the presents that I buy for my friends before the accident, none of them ever make it into their hands. And the only casualty that day is the beta fish. He doesn't survive. But it turns out that Pat was wrong that you can get your friends surprise Christmas presents. Because on that day, my friends give me the best gift I've ever been given in my life. They give me the gift of family. And until I meet my wife 15 years later, they end up being the only family I have and the only family I need. Thank you. That was really good. Thanks. What do you, who do you think took the presents in the back of your car? That's a good question. I actually have no idea. It's a question that comes up all the time. I mean, I know why yeah. the beta fish didn't make it. The car is totaled, and it yeah. eventually gets crunched into a tiny little cube. It's a Datsun B210. It's like the size <laughs> of a box of Pop-Tarts. And to give you a sense of how old that car is, I think Datsun transitioned to Hyundai in like <laughs> like 85. Yes, so, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was a terrible car. <laughs> um, but it is. I, I never get my wallet back. They cut my clothes off at the yeah. scene. I never get anything back from yeah. them, you know. So that's my post-story inquiries. But what, from that story, what should I take away? Okay, I'm going to give you three things. Okay. The first thing is the mistake I think people make most often in storytelling. I think people forget how important place is in a story. The best stories are stories that are cinematic. We see them as a movie in our mind. So oftentimes I'll hear someone start a story by saying, my mother was an interesting woman. And then they'll go off on some interesting things, maybe amusing, maybe really compelling. But we're not able to place that mother in any, like, physical location. And because of it, we're not able to grab onto that story and hold it. So when I tell you in my story those three things that you think about, um, you know, right before the accident, I'm sort of going a little expository, which Mm -hmm. I, I tend not to do in my storytelling. But even though I'm talking about how I've been told to steer into a skid, but I don't know what that means you still see me behind the wheel as I'm talking to you. So each place in my story, I tell you exactly where I am so it can be cinematic. I'm outside of Strawberries Records and Music. I'm inside my car. I'm outside of my car, you know, in the mud and the dirt by the side of the road. I'm in an emergency room surrounded by nurses. I'm slid across the emergency room and the doors are open where I can see my friends. Each time, I want you to know exactly where I am, no matter what's happening. So even if you decide on your story that the location isn't relevant, it is relevant. It's always relevant. Even if you're in your story you're going to say something 
profound, like you had a, a profound moment and you can't actually remember where you were on that moment, I say, give it a place. Pick the most likely place it happened and make that the spot that it's going to be so that we can see in our mind's eye where you are. Think movie the whole time. Think cinema and think people have to know exactly where I am at each time, even if I'm not going to mention that place ever again. Make sense? Yes. All right. Yes. So there's a through line with all the advice you've given us over all the episodes. It's cinematic. It's think of the visual. Your stories are like movies. If you listen to my stories, I'm not very big on description. Mm -hmm. I don't give a lot of description about places unless I'm providing misdirection. So like, for example, in my story, I tell you it's beautiful that it's the first time it snowed, which was true. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the lawns are turning white and it's picturesque. Yep. I use that because I'm about to have something horrific happen to me yeah. and I want that to be the biggest surprise possible. So I set you up thinking right. one thing so I can give you the other. But yeah. otherwise, I stay away from description because place fills it. If I say I'm standing outside of Strawberries Records and Music, it doesn't really matter what that place looks like, you know what that looks like for you, and that's yeah. good enough for me. Yeah. So yeah. give it place. Yeah. All right, the second thing is, I don't know what story you're going to tell, but I told a story that has some intense moments in it. You know, pretty much the whole story is kind of intense. There's no, it's not a lot of humor. And if you're telling a story with that level of intensity, you have to recognize the fact that the audience needs a moment to breathe. And the breath is often humor. And so for me, I have a few moments where I specifically place things that I know the audience can laugh and take a breath. And you laughed in all those moments, yeah. too, very conveniently for me. So when that kid leans in and says, dude, you're fucked, you laugh, right? Even though it's a terrible thing. And then I throw in that line, it's the most accurate medical assessment I will receive that day. The kid says a lot of things to me. You know, he's with me the whole time. And I could share many things that he said, but the only thing that you need to know for the purpose of the story is I need to let them laugh here before I get into that ambulance mm -hmm. because they've gone through this situation with me. And if I've done a good job, you've really had a hard time listening to the things that I've said. So now I need to have you laugh. I need to give you a chance. The other nice thing about it is if you make people laugh, they're primed to suck them right back in. You know, I always say the best way to make someone cry is to make them laugh first. Same thing with like tension and suspense. The best way to make people feel that way is to get people laughing first. That's yeah. why in a movie you'll often see like, the group has just escaped the terrible thing and they've all gathered in a room and they're having a moment and it gets a little lighthearted. And as soon as it gets lighthearted, you know they're screwed. You yep. know some terrible thing yep. is about to happen. It's Hitchcock. There's that, there's tension and then there's that little escape tension, but boom, then he gets you. Exactly. It's physiological, I think. All this stuff is physiological to some extent. So my big thing is I am at a loss right now, as we speak right now, about what I'm going to talk about. In the past, I've given myself ideas. Like, I know that one time I got an idea for a story that I could tell by going to another story night, and it was all about heroes. And then that's when it hit me. So I'm thinking of going to one of your moth slams or something. The mistake people make is they think their biggest moments are their best stories. Yeah. But if I just tell you the car accident it is really hard to get you to connect with that moment because you will not sit in the audience and go, I remember the time that I died in a car accident. That's right. I'm really connecting with you. It just doesn't happen. It wasn't until I pushed on in that story and remembered what happened in the emergency room or at least connected those two ideas because that story is not about a car accident. And if you ask, you know, if someone asks you a month from now, Matt told a story, what was that story about? The moment people remember is the moment those emergency room doors open and I have friends standing in that doorway in place of my family. Yeah. I've actually become convinced that the best movie to use in order to teach storytelling is the original Jurassic Park movie. Mm -hmm. It has so many brilliant storytelling techniques in it. And one of them is 
if you think about that movie, it's a movie about dinosaurs. It is. But really, <laughs> but really what that movie is about, it's about a guy who doesn't love children, and if he doesn't love children, he's going to lose the woman he loves. Uh-huh. And the moment in that movie, the most important moment of that movie is when that man is sitting in a tree with the two kids, and they cuddle up next to him, and he realizes in that moment, I can do this with kids. Right, the movie could almost end there if not for the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Velociraptors still threatening to kill Those everyone. Are just details. They're just details. <laughs> but if you take that out, that's the heart of the movie, right? That is the emergency room doors opening for me, right? The car accident is my Tyrannosaurus Rex. Right. So, if you find a big moment, yeah, you got to find the little in the big, and that'll make a great story. Matthew Dix, storyteller supreme. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks. I can't wait to hear it, Mike. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> I would like to now give you some details about that storytelling event. It will be on January 15th. That's Friday in New York City at the Crane with a K, Crane with a K Theater in uh, the East Village. Who will be there? Me. I'll tell a story. Frank Kennedy will tell a story. Uh, Rachel Maddow shows in-house astrophysicist Summer Ash will tell a story. Physicist turned storyteller Ben Lilly will tell a story. This is part of the Story Collider event. And we're also inviting you, if you are a Slate Plus member, to uh, hang out with me and Matthew Dix and Frank and the storytellers for a complimentary happy hour before the show, which will be upstairs at the KGB Bar upstairs from the Crane Theater in New York on January 15th. For a ticket and information about joining Slate Plus so you can attend the complimentary happy hour, go to slate.com slash live. And now the spiel, front impact. Airbag manufacturer Takata, manufacturer of defective airbags, which caused recalls of 20,000 vehicles, which killed eight Americans over the years, which were dropped by Honda Engineering, has been accused of manipulating data, so covering up their bad airbags. Today, the New York Times reports that in 2006, an airbag engineer from Takata sent an email to his colleague with a sentence in it, and that sentence is just two words, but three exclamation points. Ready? Happy manipulating. In a statement, Takata said the emails were not examples of manipulation. Happy manipulating, said one engineer to another, about eagerness in manipulating data. I don't know. Maybe Takata could say these were an example of tension-breaking or gallows humor. Well, it would be like gallows humor if the person denying the gallows humor was being accused of being a hangman. Just a little gallows humor between me and the boys down in noose maintenance. Oh, shit. The guy who sent the email, engineer Bob Schubert, wrote, Hey, I manipulated, and went on to say, I showed all the data together, which helped disguise the bimodal distribution. Nothing wrong with that. All the data is there, every piece. But then he went on and said that he used, quote, thick and thin lines to try to dress it up or changing colors to divert attention. Or pinstripes are always a good way to draw attention away from the inflated figure. Bold patterns or a cinched waist are not the friend of the more full-figured fibber. Happy manipulating. The engineer, Bob Schubert, would not give a comment. Had he, maybe he would say, no, no, happy manipulating. No, I was sending that to my colleague who had an appointment with the chiropractor. Oh, no, wait, different guy, different guy. He was auditioning to be Iago in the community theater production of a Gershwin musical based on Othello. Who could ask for anything more? 
You never heard of it? That's why I said happy manipulating. All right. I just made my joke, and now's the part where I explain a statistical concept. What is bimodal distribution, and what does that have to do with the story, with explaining the story? All right, bimodal distribution. Well, let me turn to this helpful YouTube video that seeks to explain math concepts in an easy-to-use, fun-filled way. Using Fisher's measure of kurtosis, a normal distribution would receive a coefficient of zero and be called mesokurtic. No, no, no. Okay, I won't do that to you. Let's talk distributions. Let's talk about that famous distribution. A distribution, just a collection of all numbers, so like all test results and how they're arranged. So a famous distribution is the bell curve. Can you picture the bell curve in your mind? The bell curve is really the the Egyptian pyramid of distribution. It's classic. It's iconic. It's symmetrical. It has got one big bump in the middle, and everything falls evenly on both sides, tapering off in the end. It looks a little like Snow White's hair. Oh, you don't like the Snow White's hair analogy. You think it's beneath us here. Fine, we can go back to this. The variance of a binomial random variable, sigma squared, is equal to n times p times All right, all right, you're back with me now. You need me for this. Let's talk numbers. Let's talk numbers. Let's talk this distribution called the bimodal distribution that's different from the bell curve. I will give you an example of a set of numbers and think about how you draw them on a graph. Let's say you took the annual salaries of all the executives of manufacturer Takata and their secretaries. Now plot them on a graph. You'd get a bunch of numbers around maybe the low millions, which is where the executives would be, and you get another bunch of numbers in the high tens of thousands. That's where the secretary would be. So that graph wouldn't look like Snow White's hair. That would look like, you know when Ray Lewis did the Dirty Bird from the Baltimore Ravens? He did that dance where he kind of flaps his arms. It goes up and down and up and down. Or a eh, better example, let's take a lowercase m in the Cambria font. Nice rounded humps, no sharp peaks. That's what the bimodal distribution looks like. Couple of humps. Let's say, I'll give you another example for how else you could get a set of results that would have a bimodal distribution, all right? Let's say you were teaching a class on art appreciation. Two classes, right? The morning class, the afternoon. With the morning class, you show them the art and you ask them, name the painter, and the class was good and they've been paying attention all year and it's not a hard test. So you get a bunch of test results maybe in the 90s, right? And then with the next class, instead of showing them the paintings, you just ask them to smell the paintings. They'd have to be blindfolded. It's a multiple choice. So out of four choices, most of the answers, most of the grades would be around 25%. Now, if you plotted both of these on a graph, you'd get this double humped bimodal distribution. Now, the story, the time story, didn't go into why there was a bimodal distribution, but you could see why an engineer, an airbag engineer, wouldn't want a bimodal distribution. Because what you don't want is for when the airbag deploys to have one of two things happens. You don't want that. You want one of one thing to happen. You want the airbag to deploy and the same thing happens all the time. It works and it inflates. Right? And if you were Bob Schubert or an engineer, you'd be saying, hey, look, look at all these times it inflates. Look right over there. Look at that peak. Look at that nice peak. It's inflating. It's a, it's a soft, wondrous pillow that you rest your head on. And we hope not too much of the Ford F-150 that just T-boned you. Uh, wait a minute, Bob. But there's another peak there over to the left. And then Bob says, no, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Didn't you see my complex array of thick and thin lines? What, those numbers over there? No, no. They're colored puce. Let's look 
get to the, the, the periwinkle numbers, such thrilling, the thrilling allure of periwinkle numbers. Check out those numbers, those sweet, sweet numbers. Oh, God. To quote Takata in a statement about this manipulation, Mr. Schubert is referring to the formatting of a presentation, not to the changing of data. So, yeah, airbags need to do one thing. They need to inflate. Well, maybe they need to inflate and work. When it comes to airbags, we do not want to rethink everything we thought we knew. We don't want to distrust the airbag space. Leave that space alone. That is the space for my properly inflating airbag and eventually my head. Don't want it to happen. But if it does, you want that nice pillowy airbag there. You want a nice bell curve distribution, not a bimodal distribution. And you definitely don't want to send out an email wishing everyone a merry manipulation and a happy new lawsuit. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi deploys aggressively and she does not rupture. Just executive producer Andy Bowers has been known to rupture into metal shrapnel-like fragments which spray throughout the cabin. The gist, we're on Facebook.com slash slate gist or email us at the gist at slate.com. The gist upon impact, we have discovered our airbags to actually be a giant inflatable flamingo pool raft. It's okay. You can put your drink in a little cup holder. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.